Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacatur, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On this episode, we're talking about continuing to deliver services amidst COVID-19 restrictions. Our guest is Angela Labou, the COO for the Coalition for Responsible Community Development. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? All things being considered, I'm, I'm doing just fine, hunkered down in my garage. Well, that's where you've escaped to today. Escaped from the world and the coronavirus and unfortunately my family probably. But uh, they will eventually find me. They'll find, they're going to track you down. You know, I was thinking um, that we should change the name of the podcast from how we run to how we keep running, because I feel like I'm just amazed at the things I'm hearing from organizations we're talking to about what they're doing to just keep serving and keep doing their work and to keep moving forward. Yeah. One of the cool things that we've been trying to do at the Eisner Foundation is just to collect those stories. But in times like this, I think that, you know, a lot of nonprofits are siloed and, you know, when we are able to actually convene them in person, the thing they tell us the most that they want is just the ability to talk to each other about what they do and the people they serve and how they do it and how they respond to a cantankerous board member or what they do about a corporation that is putting undue restrictions on their gift or you know, how to get around this regulation with the city or that type of thing. So one of the things we've been trying to do in, in response to COVID-19 is to allow our grantees to come together through Zoom calls and more importantly, I guess, through our website and our social media and just share how they're adapting. What are they doing differently? What are they doing to raise new money? What are they doing to manage staff that are no longer all in the same place? What are they doing if their job is to serve people and they've done it historically in person? And I think that, uh, that a lot of our grantees are learning from each other and, and, and getting good things done. So I've been very pleased with that development. And I think that's one of the things, you know, we ask ourselves all the time, how will things be different when we're done? I think that there is a role to play as a facilitator, as a convener, as a sharer of knowledge, because, you know, people like to tell foundations when they're doing something good and they're doing something interesting. It's nice to hear you recognize that and see that. And I'm really glad you're bringing your grantees together. That sounds like a meaningful way for them to learn from each other. We're trying because they're, they are the true experts. You know, they're the ones on the ground and, and they're the ones that are, that are having impact and responding to all kinds of challenges and seeing those challenges in many cases as opportunities. And it's just a resource wasted if we don't figure out ways to get their expertise out to others. So today we're talking about just that. So we're talking about maintaining current programming remotely or within, you know, reason with all of the new social distancing and safer at home initiatives that we put together. We wanted to talk to an organization that was trying to continue their programming in light of all these new restrictions. So we have the COO of the Coalition for Responsible Community Development. That's an organization in South LA. Angela Labou is here with us. Angela, welcome. Hi, thank you, Julie. Thank you thank- so Thanks so much for being here. We're excited to have you. We will start off by asking you to tell us about your organization. Sure. So Coalition for Responsible Community Development, or CRCD, was founded in 2005 by five dedicated community leaders 
They wanted to serve young adults ages 16 to 25 in the Vernon Central neighborhood of South Central LA. At our core, we build housing for homeless youth and we provide education, employment, and financial coaching services. So like our WorkSource Center, which is co-located on the campus of Trade Tech, provides access to a range of free workforce development services, including job training and placement. And we've developed 318 affordable and permanent supportive housing units in the South LA, and about 15%, 15% of those are specifically set aside for young adults ages 18 to 25 who have experienced homelessness. And so we're providing on-site services to all the residents, so it's not just the young people. And we have about a thousand more affordable and permanent supportive housing units in the pipeline. And in every building, we're setting aside units for young people, but we'll offer a range of services to all the residents. So youth are really at our core. As the chief operations officer, I oversee our implementation of our strategic plan. I oversee HR, fund development, marketing and communications, and learning and evaluation. So Angela, you obviously provide a, a ton of different services. Tell us how have things changed in the last two weeks, which I know is 17 different lifetimes. What, what's different about the work you're doing? What's different about the way you're doing that work? And what's been the hardest thing to change in terms of service delivery? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, 17 lifetimes ago is so accurate. It <laughs> feels like we've been in this for not even a full month right? And so many things have had to change. So we've had to mobilize staff to work remotely. This has probably been the biggest change. So when they're working remotely, that's primarily, you know, switching from in-person case management services to really case management over the phone, case management via web um, technology, and supporting students through independent study. The second thing that's been real that we've had to do has been to keep our drop-in centers open. So we have a center for youth experiencing homelessness. We have a center specific, a youth source center and a work source center. We've had to bring them up to regulation by increasing cleaning and sanitizing signage around washing your hands and the kind of the per personal protective things you can do and limiting the number of staff and participants on site. So we're triaging walk-ins at, at the front of each center so that we're setting up phone appointments as much as possible. And we're really limiting the number of people on site at any given time so that we can maintain kind of at least six feet of space around each desk and things like that. Even with the computer lab, we've taken out computers so that each of the computer stations that are there are at least six feet away from each other. So we've been doing a lot to just make the drop-in center spaces um, more conducive to the environment that we're in from a safety and health perspective. So it sounds like the drop-in centers have been deemed essential services though too, so that you can stay open, right? Yes, so homeless services has been deemed as essential services. The social services for folks who are, you know, who are considered disadvantaged groups have also been deemed essential. So our work source and youth source centers get folks connected to job training. They help people find jobs. We are seeing folks who have been laid off who are now trying to find a new job or get into a training. And all of that is free. You know, it's funded through the city. And so those resources are still available to folks, especially in this time where folks are really experiencing those challenges. So we want to be, we want to be there for the community. Um, these are also spaces where folks can get food and they can get, get connected to other resources like physical health screenings. We often have, we'll have those often on site and things like that. 
And then I think the one of the biggest changes too has been with our charter schools. So CRCD Academy uh, serves young people who have been pushed out of the traditional uh, high school settings. And so it's under the Youth Build Charter School of California and is co-located on the campus of LA Trade Tech, which has been really cool because then you have high school students who are on a college campus. But you know, in this situation, and the community colleges have really had to make hard decisions to close campuses and make and pivot to have those courses be online. For the charter school, we've actually had to have students transition to independent study. And so their youth advocates are working with them to still try to complete those, those independent study packets. And I'd have to say that that's, that's been a huge shift as well because we're used to seeing students every day and keeping them motivated, you know, and, and that's also another really hard change we've had to make. Angela, I just want to go back to the WorkSource Centers for a second. What kind of changes have you had to make there with staff or in procedure to keep those centers open and functional? We've had to implement staggered schedules, right? Because we can't have so many people on site at any given time. So we're really limiting how many people can be on site at any given time. We've set up triage desks at the front of the center so that anybody who does walk in, we can set up a phone um, appointment with them. Or if they have access to internet, we can FaceTime with them or we can you know, connect with them over video conference. But the fact of the matter is that not everybody has those resources available. We do have a couple of grant applications out there to purchase some basic smartphones for our participants so that for those who don't have access, we can provide that um, and they can still be safe themselves. Like they don't necessarily have to go out for services if if we can provide them um, over the phone or over the internet. This has been really interesting too, because we've been looking at different ways to make applications available online make intake forms available online? What are all the things that we were being required by funders to to do in person with the technology that's out there now? How can we actually, you know, even just bring our services up to the 21st century, right? Can you give an example of something that you were required to do in person that you feel like you can do online or that you're moving? One of the examples is is just intake forms. So when you have an intake form, you have to show proof of document, you have to show different proofs of documentation, whether it's income, you have to show ID. If you're trying to get services at the WorkSource Center, you have to show your right to work documents. They require a wet signature. And so we've been talking to our funders around, instead of having a wet signature, could it be a DocuSign application? Will Will that suffice? And we're seeing some of our funders also move towards that, um, which has been really exciting. Um, And so we're also trying to go in that direction across all of our different forms. Any any funder that is claiming they need to have a wet signature, whatever the heck that is, in this time of crisis, please call me and let's talk about the people that are being served in these communities and how they're being served and the danger that they're at right now. And the fact that you're claiming that you still need a wet signature um, is, is, is something. <laughs> uh, I think we lost our path to the waterfall somewhere along the way. 
Yeah. Thanks, Trent. I will. Please. That comes up. <laughs> I'm never, never going to get invited to one of those oak panel breakfasts again. But I'm willing to go to lead the crusade against the wet signature movement. Well, I think a lot of people are finding that this time is really challenging assumptions and changes are being made really quickly. Like things you were told you couldn't do, like all of a sudden it's obvious that you can do them. Right. Yeah. And I think that that is, that's been really, you know, I think that that's been really interesting that all of a sudden we're getting guidance from government partners that will say, hey, this is how you can do remote case conferencing or remote case management. And this is some great guidance. And and the guidance has been really great, you know, but it does, it does make you question, you know, how much of this, how much of this work that we can be doing in different ways and not just, you know, the direct services, but also, you know, community engagement meetings. We had a whole plan for community engagement for one of our developments and now we can't have big convenings. So, so how do we still get input from the community about projects in their neighborhoods that they care about and they want to have a voice in? How do we still create those spaces to give that input? And so these last few weeks have been all of that mobilizing, all of that pivoting, whether it was increasing the number of cleaning um, and sanitizing sessions that are happening with our with our janitorial services. How do you stay on top of all the new rules and regulations? So I am checking the news all the you time. You just you just winced. No one can ever. <laughs> no one will see it, but you winced when you said that. It's 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 hard because so many things are changing. So I think we we take it as a team. You know, we'll we'll we approach this from a team kind of effort. So I get to work every day and huddle every day with our CEO, our CFO, our chief programs officer, and our chief of real estate. And so between the five of us, we're looking at we're kind of keeping track of different different things. And so. I am generally checking the DOL and OSHA uh, regulations. OSHA released guidance specifically for organizations and what they should be doing given their risk profile. And so, you know, so we're a medium risk organization. And so I can look at that guidance and really look at what are the things that we should be doing what are the things that we can do from an administrative perspective? What are the things that we can be doing from um, kind of an operational perspective? When is it appropriate to, to give personal protective equipment, for example, to, to employees so that they also know when to use those things? When is the appropriate time to use those things? You know, and, and it's important that we as leadership are really clear about you know the sources where we're getting information so that when we're when we're implementing these policies um they know that there is a reason why this is why you know i think people are more understanding when you can give them the why you like let's not just change something and implement a policy without telling them why because then otherwise it just spreads you know, more uncertainty and nervousness. There's a supply chain issue right now, and we want to make sure that we're conserving supplies for when they're needed, but also being clear about when they're needed, right? So I get a lot of the OSHA guidance has been really helpful, and um, we're checking the CDC website on a regular basis. 
our insurance benefits broker has been an incredible resource. So we work with Gallagher and they have given us guidance. They will analyze different policies that are coming up. They've been providing all kinds of webinars. Our HR has been really helpful as well because they will also get information from organizations like SHRM and things like that. And whenever I have a question, I will refer to our, well, most questions right now, especially, I'll refer to our benefits broker. They've just been really great to work with. And if we really need it, then we'll tap into our legal counsel. <laughs> there's language that we are, when we're writing up policies, you know, we want to just make sure that, that what we're writing is not just reactive to the moment, but is also is also really responsive to the needs of our team. So let's not just write a policy because so-and-so insurance company said you should have it, but what is the business need for that? There's obviously been, you know, some emergency funding made available through government grants and also through special funds at some of these wet signature foundations um, that are out there. But when this is over, and, and I am confident it will be over, you're going to be back to being reliant on those donors that have been with you through thick and thin. What are you guys doing to keep those donors engaged, to keep them plugged into your work and, you know, not to lose them to, you know, the other flashier, splashier fundraising appeals that are coming in the door from all the other entities that, you know, that desperately need money in these difficult times. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, so when I think about, so for us, it's, it's interesting because we're about 75% um, government funded. So our donor base is really quite, right now, our individual donor base is, is a group of folks that we're really trying to grow and cultivate, you know? So when it comes to our non-government donors, We've been sending updates on our listserv. We've been, you know, posting things on social media as we start to launch more of the, especially like the community engagement work around projects. We want to invite our donors to take a look at how this work is happening in a different way. How are we, you know, how are we still working closely with the community, even in this new environment? So for our donors, it's been really interesting because the group is, is, is still quite small. We, it's actually a little, uh, I just have to sigh when I think about it, but this year is our 15 year anniversary. So we actually had this whole strategy for, you know, for having kind of a, a, an, a 15 year anniversary celebration. And now all those plans, <laughs> We don't know if that, you know, we're still, that's still in a holding pattern until about the end of the month. We'll see whether we, whether we'll have to, whether we can keep moving forward with that strategy or whether we'll have to, you know, shift and maybe do that next year, just depending on how things shake out. I think when I think about it from the perspective of our funders, we have been in very close communication with a lot of our funders and just letting them know kind of what are we still doing, where the gaps are, and they've been really helpful in pointing us in the direction of different funding opportunities. LASA, the Homeless Services Authority, has actually been doing a really great job of hosting 
calls with providers three times a week, including a CFO call, you know, that includes city, the mayor's office, the supervisor's homeless deputies, the Office of Emergency Management, Department of Health Services, Public Health, Department of Mental Health, and Department of Mental Health, just so that everybody is communicating about what's in, what, what resources are becoming available, the status of those, but also what the challenges are. So I think it's a little different for us because we don't have a huge individual donor base yet. I'd be interested to kind of learn uh, more about how folks are are continuing to communicate with their with their donors because at this point for us our focus has really been on as I was mentioning earlier like really just kind of making the pivot and mobilizing our team in a different way over the last few weeks. Well, after you do this high-powered podcast, you'll have millions of individual donors who are just going to come flying through the door wanting to support your good works and uh, regarding your 15th anniversary celebration there's nothing magical about 15 you can have the world's greatest <laughs> sweet 16 party next year Ooh, and, and 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 pe- people will come around it trent that's such a great idea i love the sweet 16. Oh. there you go i was thinking the opposite though next year just do the 15 and call it like year 2020 do-over because i think everybody <laughs> would be excited to redo this year because it oh feels like it was yeah. it's not off right, to try, a great start try both our ideas and yeah. see which one tell us which right. one raises more and we'll take a, yeah. we'll put a little okay. bet on it <laughs> yeah but do mine first because okay. uh, there won't be any money left over for for julie's idea <laughs> I see how it is. When you were talking about um, the pivots you're making to continue your services, I heard you talk about buying cell phones and adding cleaning supplies. And I was thinking it's adding cost everywhere. So I'm wondering where the money's coming from or how you're moving the money. Are you talking to funders about using their money in different ways? Oh my gosh, that is such a great question. So I think we've been really fortunate in that our funders are allowing us to move funding within existing contracts. And so if there's funding left, they are allowing us to submit budget modifications. And as long as they're allowable costs, they will approve the budget modifications. I think the challenge is that some of the contracts, like we're about to be in the the last quarter of the, the fiscal year. You know, so a lot of those contracts, they have already been spent down. We want to make sure that there is that we're able to still keep staff on as much as possible. We don't want to have to reduce hours or anything like that because we are very intentional around our employment strategy and we we employ folks from the neighborhood. Right. We employ folks with lived experiences of the justice system, of homelessness. So we know that if they are not working, then that's going to be detrimental to their families, that they're not necessarily going to have the savings to be able to not work. And so even being able to provide additional sick leave is a challenge, right? So our funders have been really great as far as like letting us do budget mods. We were a little lucky, I think, in that there were a few contracts that were under that were on track to underspend. So for those contracts, we've been very we are going to need to do, you know, we're going to need to modify the budget in this different, in these different ways. But then there's also just applying to different funding opportunities that have been made available, you know, through different funders. 
even with those budget modifications, those contracts are cost reimbursement. And so we still have to be able to pay for things up front, like the cost of IT. You can't just cost reimburse that, you know. And so being able to speak with our funders about opening lines of credit and things like that has also been part of the discussion. There have been, you know, some of our funders have been really great, like to just see how we're doing and what are the needs. LISC, Weingart, you know, CSH, they've all reached out to our CEO, to our CFO and our chief of real estate officer to see how is this impacting our staffing? How is this impacting whether like our cash flow? You know, I think cash flow, especially for you know, nonprofits of our size, we're under 100 employees, we're 78 total. Nonprofits our size, cash flow is a real issue to always try to be raising and setting aside that rainy day fund as well. It, it's having a reserve as a nonprofit can be really tough when most of the contracts are cost reimbursement. So we've also been advocating for, you know, just for some flexibility and providing advances. On certain um, on certain contracts, or to not, or if there was an advance, to not reconcile it yet at this point, right? So, and on the government side, our funders have been really um, open and flexible. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, even with the wonderful support of our funders, there's still an upfront cost that is very real to be able to to make these pivots that we're making. What are your challenges going to be? in the days to come and how do you plan on addressing those challenges and turning them into opportunities? I think a challenge is going to be just continuing to make sure that our, that the workforce is there, that our people are there and that they feel safe and, and, and that they feel safe and that they're, that they're working in a safe environment. I, I worry that when all of like, I, I really worry like how long is this really going to last? The length of time is something that I think is a challenge ahead. So how long do, can we keep operating this way? What is that going to mean for service delivery overall? We're still at the beginning of the calendar year, right? There's like a whole year of, of, of programming and trach, you know, all staff meetings and staff appreciation events and things like that, that it, it just puts everything in limbo. You know, that uncertainty is probably the thing that worries me the most is what is this, what is everything really going to look like after April, after May? We have a, we have an annual graduation for CRCD Academy, you know, and is that going to happen? <laughs> I really do wonder what, what, what our field is going to look like of providing services. What is it going to look like post coronavirus? It's hard for me to think that far ahead because so many things are still so present to deal with and to work on. Sure, um, that's that's 27 yeah. lifetimes from now. Yeah. It well, feels that way. It but feels- Angela, while you while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, if if you feel uncertain and you feel this way, that your staff must feel that way too. So how do you coach them through this time or help them when they might feel uncertain or scared about doing their job? Do you have any advice on dealing with that? I think that's the area where we're 
I don't want to say where we're doing the best at, but. Um, <laughs> but no one can see, but you just like very fancily <laughs> tossed your hair to the side. So she's, she's doing the best at this. <laughs> this is where we've really been putting in a lot of our focus because so much is changing. So we've written up a lot of guidance, a lot of updating policies and things like that, sending them out to all staff, but also having separate calls and separate assistance specifically for our directors and managers. We've implemented daily huddles with each of the departments and our chief programs officer and I participate on those so that we can hear things that are happening in real time and problem solve and provide support to our managers um, and our directors. We're huddling on a daily basis as an executive team as well. Um, to address different issues as they're coming out. We're trying to be as flexible as we can with folks' schedules as well. And so working really closely with managers to put together staggered schedules that, that at least feel equitable. So there are a couple of positions where the scope of work really doesn't allow the person to work from home. And so for those positions, we've been very clear with our directors and those staff supervisors that for them, you know, just let them have a day off. Like they should not be working five days a week. You know, give them like set them, put them on the schedule for four and that fifth day, whatever day that is throughout the week, let them have it off. So they also have time to care, you know, for themselves and for their families. Um, we're taking a closer look at hazard pay, at premium pay and things like that. And those are also conversations that our funders have also been very involved with and very helpful in giving advice. And so that's something else that we're looking at, again, in a way that also feels equitable to folks, but really focusing on our frontline staff who are really interfacing with people. Yes, folks are going to have staggered schedules, and so sometimes they're working remotely, but they're also the folks who are on a day-to-day -day basis interfacing with the community. So we're trying to do more of that, of just continuing to communicate internal newsletters, daily huddles with every team making ourselves available to problem solve with each manager, each, you know, each director on anything that is coming up. We're exploring some other things too, like, you know, can we do a wellness Wednesday where maybe everybody breaks at a certain time and can do like, like yoga or stretching or meditation via, you know, via Zoom or Microsoft Teams. We, we're very big on Microsoft Teams. Um, and so, trying to find ways to take care of our staff in that way as well. I think that's great, Angela. I think the commitment that you're making to your staff and in trying to retain as many people as possible, actually caring about their mental health, not just treating them as, as soldiers on the front line, as disposable robots that go out there and and serve an even more vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys are serving the most vulnerable population in Los Angeles, but when you talk about you only have 78 employees, that's 78 families that are dependent on this job and this work and not having to worry about they might lose their job this afternoon, which puts them at risk of being one of the people that you serve. So it's, uh, you know, if our listeners can take one message from this, in my opinion, it's, uh, it's you guys' commitment to your people, supporting them and making sure that, that they're going to be there for the long haul. That's, uh, that's a really noble effort, and I commend you for it. So thank you. Thank you. That's what we're here to do. Angela, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for your time. 
Thank you, Angela. Really appreciated it. Keep up the great work. Thank you for having me. This was really a wonderful moment to kind of step back and reflect on what we're doing and um, to also just kind of um, give a, a, some more thought to things coming ahead. I appreciate the, the time to reflect with you all. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.